Hi guys, welcome back to Vox Tablet, the weekly podcast of Tablet Magazine. I'm Julie Subrin. Today, we've got literary critic Adam Kirsch on reading a page of Talmud a day. If one were to read a page of Talmud every day, it would take about seven and a half years to reach the end. For thousands of Jews, including no doubt some of you, that's not a hypothetical scenario. It's an approach to Talmud study called Daf Yomi, or Page of the Day, and people have been doing it that way since it was first proposed back in 1923. Now joining the ranks is the writer and poet Adam Kirsch. Kirsch is best known as a literary critic who writes for us here at Tablet, as well as for The New Republic, The New Yorker, and The New York Review of Books. Last August, he decided to throw his hat in the ring with those taking up a new Daf Yomi cycle. It's the first time he's ventured into Talmud study, and he's been writing a weekly column for us about his reactions. Today, Adam is speaking with Jonathan Rosen about what he's taken away from this project so far. Rosen is the author of the book The Talmud and the Internet. He's also the editor of the Jewish Encounters series, published by Next Book Inc., which also publishes Tablet. Jonathan, take it away. Adam Kirsch, welcome. Thanks. Uh, maybe the best way to start uh, is to ask you for listeners who may not be familiar or that familiar with the Talmud, if you could describe it. If someone were to ask you in a bar, as I'm sure happens all the time, what is the Talmud? Well, I have had conversations like that since starting Daf Yomi and it's uh, – it's more difficult to explain than you might think. I guess the best way to explain it is that it's in two parts. There's the Mishnah and the Gemara. And the Mishnah is a collection of legal rulings gathered around the year 200 CE. And then the Gemara, which is most of the Talmud or lengthwise most of it, is a series of debates and discussions about the Mishnah conducted over the next three centuries. So really what you're doing when you're reading the Talmud is eavesdropping in or participating in a conversation among rabbis who lived about 1,500 years ago about different aspects of Jewish law. Right. I think that's a great summary. You might throw in uh, a lot of commentators who often lived in the Middle Ages who also appear on a printed page of Talmud. And I'm wondering if you could also say what is a duff? Sure. A daf is a folio page of Talmud, a single page, both sides. So when you read a daf, uh, you're actually reading both sides of a single page of Talmud. And it's true on a on a traditional Talmud page, there are the commentators of various eras uh, in, interpreting, analyzing what's on the page. What I've been reading as part of this project is just the Mishnah and Gemara with footnotes in an English translation. Adam, do you feel that you're studying the Talmud as a secular Jew uh, engaged in a detached intellectual exercise or would you say that you're doing it for religious motivations or that they're blended within you? I'd say probably somewhere between the two. I'm not doing it as a straightforward religious practice the way an orthodox person would uh, because they want to follow these laws. I recognize that I'm reading about laws that I don't follow in my daily life. And I'm not observant uh, in most ways. So I wouldn't claim to be doing it in a traditional or a fully religious spirit. Um, it's not a completely detached intellectual exercise though. It really is for me an attempt to make an attachment with a tradition, with a part of Jewish tradition that I think many contemporary secular Jews don't know anything about. Um, I certainly only knew it in the vaguest terms before I started reading it. And what was the initial impetus for doing it? 
Well, when the last Dafyomi cycle ended, which was last summer, there was a great big celebration at a giant stadium in the Meadowlands, the Siyum Hashas. And I think something like 90,000 people came and celebrated. And I thought that was an amazing event, which I read about in the newspapers, to see this very traditional uh, form of Jewish life and practice being celebrated in an American football stadium, that it was sort of a wonderful meeting of two worlds. And that combined with some sort of pre-existing interests and ideas uh, gave me the motivation to join in. You wrote a wonderful book on Lionel Trilling, one of the great literary critics of the 20th century. And uh, I have a, a sentence to read you. I guess it's from his essay, Wordsworth and the Rabbis, where he writes, I can have no pride in seeing a long tradition, often great and heroic, reduced to this small status in me. And I'm wondering if it was partly a determination not to do what Trilling did, which was just embrace the smallness of the tradition in him. It is definitely. Reading that essay was one of the things that set my mind on the track of reading the Talmud because Trilling was writing about Wordsworth, which he knew very well, and the rabbis who he really didn't know anything about. He was uh, working on the basis of a book called The Rabbinic Mind, which was written by a friend of his. And I thought this is the situation of so many Jewish intellectuals in the 20th century in America is that we have emotions about our tradition without knowing anything about it. And I thought that it would be strengthening both intellectually and sort of personally to actually know more about the tradition even if I'm not practicing it. Um, that is one of the things that I've come to think about a lot writing for Tablet and, and reading Jewish literature is that it's possible to have a connection with Jewish history that's separate from Jewish observance, that you can be Jewish with a relationship to Jewish history in the same way that a French person might be – might have a connection to French history without being Catholic, even though being Catholic was part of French history for so long. The analogy isn't exact because Judaism is both a nationality and a religion. But I think that you can situate yourself in the 21st century in Jewish history recognizing that we live in a post-enlightenment world where a lot of religious assumptions are unsettled and still want to turn back to what happened before those unsettling – that unsettling occurred and want to have some connection with that past. I'm curious thinking about people like Trilling and even contemporary scholars who are identified as either Jewish writers or Jewish critics uh, for whom the Talmud would be as alien as it was for Trilling. Why do you think it is this huge, vast, much translated body of work that's so central to Jewish culture and tradition? Why is it so alien or forbidding? Well, I guess there are a couple of different ways you could answer the question. One would be pragmatically that to read the Talmud and study it in, even in a sort of superficial way is a very big commitment. Um, it's an extremely complex, huge text occupying Six, I think, sixty-three tractates, um, all of which get into very minute questions of law and practice. So you, it's not something that you can read casually. Even engaging with it at all requires a, a lot of effort and commitment. So that's one reason. Another reason I think is that for 
contemporary Jews, the Talmud represents a lot of things that we feel ambivalent about. It represents laws that we don't follow, a tradition that we feel emancipated from, perhaps. Um, it's identified with centuries when Jewish experience was sharply segregated from Western experience. And now living in America in the 21st century, we think of ourselves as fully Western and don't necessarily want to be identified with the Talmud, which reminds us of a time when Jewish culture was separate. Uh, so I think that there's a certain unease with the Talmud. And that's something that I've even encountered in talking to people about reading Dafyomi, uh, both online and in person. Often people will say, why would you want to read the Talmud? Or I have no use for the Talmud. Um, there's a, a certain predisposition to want to shy away from it. So you began with the tractate Shabbat, now moving into uh, Erevin. Uh, what's, what are some of the most outlandish things you've come across? Well, there's outlandish in a sort of logical sense, it, by which I mean logic problems carried to an extreme, almost like ca like imaginary case studies. So one thing that has stuck with me is there's a rule that you're not supposed to move, you're not supposed to carry an item more than four cubits on Shabbat in a public domain. And one of the ways that this principle is tested is what if you threw something at a wall that was four cubits away and it bounced back? And it didn't travel the whole four cubits because it ended up only three cubits in front of you. And then in reasoning out this problem, one of the rabbis suggests, well, what if the thing you threw at the wall was a fig cake so that it actually stuck to the wall? Um, now, that's the kind of thing that is so improbable that you'd think this could never happen in real life. No one has ever thrown a fig cake at a wall to see if it was going to stick. Another example from just this week is rules about preparing food for animals. One of the rules is that you are – uh, not allowed to chop up a corpse of an animal to feed another animal because it's already edible without being chopped up. And then there's a rabbi who says, well, what about if it's an elephant? An elephant you would have to chop up. And I thought in reading that, how many Babylonian Jews in the 5th century were feeding elephants to their dogs? Okay. It's, it's Jews and the elephant question. Right, exactly. Um, so these are, are some examples of logical reasoning carried to uh, a hyperbolic extreme. But if you think about it as logical reasoning, as an almost mathematical deduction that the rabbis are trying to work out the, the limits of these principles, then it becomes much more comprehensible. And often what the rabbis are using as a case study has to be understood as a case study and not as something that was going to come up in everyday life. And after you've studied Shabbat and you're studying Erevin, then you'll see the rabbis are often liberalizing things that they made more stringent in Shabbat by mm. redefining public space. So right. it keeps commenting on itself as well. Uh, you wrote recently uh, very wonderfully about uh, a couple of things. One of them was how you suddenly stumbled upon this famous story about Hillel and Shammai, uh, you know, and um, a man who wants to convert who comes to each of them. And Shammai drives him away angrily and Hillel leaves him with this beautiful precept whatever is hateful to you, don't do to others. The rest is commentary. Go and study. Uh, but then in the same, on the same page, you come up with uh, the rabbis talk about causes of death for women in childbirth, including not lighting Shabbat candles. So I was sort of wondering if you could talk about that world of endless, bizarre or unlikely juxtapositions where it's not just Hillel versus Shammai. It's two modes of thought on the very same page that seem to almost contradict each other. Sure. Well, that is one of the famous stories from the Talmud that one often hears or that I had heard even before 
reading it in the Talmud. And there are a number of stories like that that I think might be familiar to people. But when you actually read them in context, you realize that the Agadah, the sort of legend and the lore in the Talmud, really is secondary to the Halakha, that what is most important to the rabbis is figuring out the laws and how they work. And it's sort of in the intersections of that that you get the wonderful stories and the anecdotes and stories about famous rabbis or cooking advice or any of the other parts of life that enter into the Talmud. So there are these different ways of thinking and it's tempting to sort of go straight for the Agadah because that is much easier to assimilate. It's much harder to force yourself to follow each step of a halakhic argument um, to – for example, one of one thing that often occurs is there will be two conflicting opinions uh, and two Tanaim, rabbis of the Mishnah, who are have these opinions attributed to them. And then later rabbis will try to figure out which one said which opinion. And in order to figure that out, they'll bring up many other things that each of these rabbis is supposed to have said that are analogous in different situations. And it really can be a very um, drawn out and attenuated process of reasoning. To follow that is very difficult. And it's not difficult for me in the way that literature can be difficult. It's difficult in the way that mathematics almost can be difficult because it involves keeping a chain of logical deductions in your mind for a long time. When I studied Talmud with my wife, she was always drawing a chart for me and I was always very bad at the chart portion of, say, the SATs. Yes, uh, exactly. But at the same time, it's those eruptions of story that seem equally part of the culture. And you recently had a terrific column where you quote one of the rabbis as saying, leave the Jewish people alone and do not rebuke them. Uh, I was wondering if you could talk about that because it's such a fantastic revelation of an aspect of the Talmud that's almost the flip side of all of these stringencies and categories. Well, when I pointed that out in my column, I was quickly reminded by commenters that this idea of leniency towards the Jewish people doesn't apply to everything. It only applies to certain kinds of things. But what's going on in, in Tractate Shabbat is that the rabbis are discussing more things that you're not supposed to do on Shabbat and among the things that come up are uh, dancing, clapping your hands, and sitting in your doorway. And the reasons you're not supposed to do these is not in and of themselves, but because they might lead to prohibited labor. So you're not allowed to sit in your doorway in case something rolls out of your house into the street, and then you'll be tempted to go get it and bring it back into your house, and thus you'd be violating a Shabbat law about transferring. Um, and then one of the other rabbis says, we we have these prohibitions, but in fact, Jews do these things all the time. And it's a wonderful moment of this empirical reality intruding on the, the text because often when you're reading the Talmud, you get no sense of how these precepts are being applied in daily life or what the actual legal force of them is. And here's a rabbi saying these are examples of Shabbat prohibitions that are not enforced and we don't make any attempt to enforce them. And why is that? And then the response is – leave the Jewish people alone when it comes to things that you know they're not going to obey. So it's better if you know in advance that people are so set in their ways that they're not going to obey a law, not to even tell them about the law, because that way they'll be violating it unintentionally rather than violating it intentionally. And that's such an amazing principle. You would think if you would extend that far enough, you could justify anything. Um, you could certainly justify, say, driving on Shabbat. That's an excellent example today of something that if you tell people not to do it, they're probably going to do it anyway. So you might as well just not tell them. Um, that sort of negotiation of the principles of the law with the way people actually behave is one of the things that is most interesting to me in the Talmud. Uh, I feel like if you wanted an explanation beyond circumcision for why the Romans didn't choose Judaism as the religion of choice, the Talmud would help 
offer it just because it's so difficult and because instead of an aphoristic um, salvation like whoever believes in me will have eternal life, there are all these points and counterpoints. So I guess what I want to know is does the difficulty of it feel inseparable from the morality of Judaism itself? Well, one thing that I've come to realize is that being raised in a conservative synagogue, um, you're given a certain vision of Judaism, what Judaism is and says. If you're raised in a reform synagogue or different kinds of upbringing, you take with you certain ideas of what Judaism is. Then you look at the Talmud, you find things in it that are completely contrary to that idea that you were raised with. So for instance, I was surprised very early on at the beginning of Tractate Brachot to see that um, the rabbis of the Talmud believed in demons, that no one completely uncontroversially you would think from the context that they simply believed that people were surrounded by demons and that there were certain magical practices that you could undertake to appease the demons or make them show themselves. And you think of Judaism as being a religion that doesn't have demons, right? That's one thing that separates it from paganism is that we believe in one God, one spiritual power. Uh, it made me realize that Judaism is a very various tradition, that it has meant different things at different times. And maybe there's a certain freedom in that, that it can mean something to us in our time that we want it to mean. There was a book by A.J. Jacobs called um, The Year of Living Biblically where he tried to do everything in accordance with biblical injunction. He grew a big beard avoided things, did things. Uh, I feel like the year of living Talmudically would not be funny in the same way. And I'm wondering maybe as a way to almost characterize what the Talmud is, what would the year of living Talmudically be? Is it the way you think about the world, talk about the world? Is it arguing or is it just being an Orthodox Jew? Well, I'd say one part of it would be being an Orthodox Jew. But what that means, of course, is something very different from living biblically. And in fact, what Jacobs did in that book of living biblically is a recurrent sort of heresy in Jewish history. It's something that's associated with minority sects like the Sadducees or the Karaites that from time to time people say, you know, we don't need all this other tradition. We're just going to go back to the Bible and do what it says in, in the five books of Moses, that as a living tradition, Judaism continues to evolve after the Torah. It continues to add layers and it continues to change its practices so that to live as an Orthodox Jew in the 21st century is not the same thing as living like a Jew of biblical times because there's this intervening history that has to be respected and integrated. Um, on the other hand, living Talmudically in the sense of studying the Talmud, I think, would be rather wonderful in some ways. And one of the one of the things that doing this has meant to me is that you often read, if you read about traditional Eastern European life, of how sweet Torah study was and how much people loved it and how it was this wonderful um, plane that you could ascend to above the plane of ordinary life uh, and that it was something that you would want to devote your, your life to if you could. Um, that the rich or the especially privileged actually got to do that. Working people were not able to, but they would take an, an hour here, an hour there to read the Talmud if they could. It's helped me to understand why that is because it really is a sort of pure form of intellectual exercise that is very gratifying if you love intellectual exercise. Does it seem connected uh, to the kind of literary criticism that you're writing? Does it seem like a totally alien form of literature or this is our divine comedy? It doesn't feel like literature. And in fact, one of the things that someone told me when I first started on this endeavor was you're a literary critic and the Talmud isn't literature. 
So don't try to read it like literature. And that's true. It's not like literature. For one thing, it's not in a single voice. It's the record of dozens and maybe hundreds of voices all in dialogue with each other. Um, for another thing, it's not about the self the way that literature, especially modern literature is. It's about laws and something outside the self and how you're supposed to behave, not how you feel. Um, it's a very different conception of religion than I think the one that we're raised with today. So it doesn't read like literature and I think that the tools that it requires, the intellectual tools are very different from the tools that you have to bring to literature. At the same time, it is a text. And it is a process of reading and interpreting a text, which is what literary criticism is as well. But, you know, Kafka said famously, Jews of Prague, you know more Yiddish than you think. Did you discover that you knew more Talmud than you thought or was it all a, sh a shock? It wasn't – I can't say that I felt that I knew it. Um, it does seem strange to me. It does seem foreign to me. I think – there's a tendency among – or there's a, a recurring issue among Jewish literary critics of whom I'm one, I guess, that if you're a literary critic, does that mean that in some sense you are fulfilling the same role as a Talmud scholar did a thousand years ago? In other words, if I was the same kind of person I am but I was born in Spain in the year 1000, would I have become a, a Talmud scholar rather than a literary critic? Um, the sense that these two things are related somehow. They're both about analysis of texts. That's something that intrigues me and maybe one reason why I wanted to read the Talmud was to try to get an answer to that question. And I think maybe the answer is yes and no. The, the yes part is the idea of valuing texts and of seeing texts as a crucial way of engaging with the world and with reality, that is a Jewish legacy and a Jewish inheritance. On the other hand, you can't claim to know something that you never learned. And considering that it's probably been four or five generations since anyone in my family studied the Talmud, I can't claim to have any sort of atavistic knowledge of it. I don't know it until I actually open it up and start studying it. Do you think you'll go all seven years? Uh, I and, don't, and then obviously start again, which is the expectation. Right. Well, that's one of the wonderful things about it is that when I started it. In August, it was the first time for me, but for tens of thousands of people, they had just finished and then they the very next day started again, which is a very concrete way of saying that this isn't something you come to an end of and then you've got it under your belt and you make use of what you learned. It's really about doing it, about the process and the process never ends. Um, for me, I don't see any reason why the process should end before seven and a half years. I'm hoping that I'll be able to get to the end. Adam Kirsch, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thanks. Adam Kirsch's Daf Yomi column appears every Tuesday at tabletmag.com. Kirsch is also the author of Benjamin Disraeli, one of the biographies in Next Book's Jewish Encounter series. If any of you are studying a daily page of Talmud for the first time, and we'd love to hear how it's going, post a comment on the site at tabletmag.com or email us at podcast at tabletmag.com. Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm Jonathan Rosen. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>